I'm Irish Secretary of the NUJ and my job is just to uh, welcome you all here. Uh, I think 40 people have registered, so in great journalist tradition some people will be late. Um, I uh, want to congratulate the Dublin Freelance Branch again on organising this event uh, and to acknowledge the support of the BAI who are uh, granted this event. The Freelance Forum is intended as a training session, but it's also an important opportunity for freelancers to meet. I'm very aware that uh, freelance uh, work can be lonely and it can be challenging, and the opportunity simply to meet other people who face the same challenges is really important. Uh, I want to acknowledge the presence of Jerry Carson, who is the chair or coherent of the Irish Executive Council, uh, and Jerry is here today as well travel from Belfast and uh, if you get to talk to Jerry during the day, Jerry has an in interesting career span, uh, not least in his role of communicating with journalist staff and freelance uh, during the troubles as working within the, the Royal Victoria Hospital. Uh, our session today will be introduced by Tim Dawson, who is President of the Union and himself a, a, a distinguished freelance, um, sometimes. and. Uh, <laughs> who has, is to me the embodiment of uh, a good freelance, someone who has identified a passion and an interest and turned it into, uh, I'm not sure that it makes you very wealthy, but it actually certainly generates some that income, and that is uh, the area of cycling. Um, before I uh, allow Tim to speak, I just want to say to you that this is a significant month uh, for the NUJ and for freelance journalists, and that you will, be in, you will know that for almost two decades we have been contesting the uh, position of the Competition Authority of Ireland who, who refused to allow collective representation or even the setting of rates by the NUJ for freelance journalists on the basis that they judge journalists to be undertakings or businesses. And we along with SIP2 and Congress have been contesting that at a number of levels. The pace of that ha battle has been very slow, it has been very frustrating and at times uh, this branch and other branches have, I think, lost patience with both the NUJ and Congress and successive governments on this issue. Uh, the private members bill introduced by Senator Ivana Bacic uh, just before the election was accepted by the government on the basis, I think, that they didn't think it was going to go any further. Uh, Senator Bacic subsequently reintroduced the bill in the new Senate where with the new political dispensation there's greater flexibility for people like ourselves to lobby. Uh, and the good news is that by the end of this month the amended bill uh, will uh, be presented to the Senate with amendments from Senator Ma uh, Deputy Mary Mitchell O'Connor um, and that's a person you won't hear very many trade unionists praising uh, but bluntly I think that having a minister who doesn't know everything uh, it sometimes can be a benefit. Uh, her, she has been supportive of the representations of the NUJ. Senator Babacic, who actually acted for us as a council early on, has prepared a bill which is highly significant uh, and it is predicted that the government amendments will actually strengthen the bill. If it passes the Senate and the NUJ have secured the, the commitments of all of the political parties, it would pretty much have an easy flow to the doll, and it is anticipated that by Christmas the bill will allow representation of named categories of workers as provided for in 
the transition agreement towards 2016. So that means session musicians, uh, freelance journalists and voiceover actors specifically get a mention in the law and anyone else would have to apply uh, for uh, the right to representation and a ministerial order. It's a complex process but I'm not particularly worried about the complexities we're involved. On a lighter note, I remember when the social partnership talk, talks collapsed, the only provision that stood was that towards 2016 provision in relation to uh, freelance workers. And Larry Brodzik of the IBOA, now the finance union, threw off his hands in horror and said, and Seamus Dooley is still smiling because, and pardon the French, everyone else is fucked, but his journalists are all right. Uh, that was a bit previous because it took a long time before we've got this. Uh, it does represent new challenges. It represents uh, an opportunity for us to organise, to organise in the workplaces, but also to develop our own rates and our own discussions. Up to now, we had been doing that not just in the vacuum, but in the face of a le legal challenge. And the best person to uh, in the room today to suggest how the union is going to meet those challenges is probably the president of the union, Tim Dawson. Thank you very much, Seamus. Um, good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I've, I've been invited to one or two of these uh, events in the past and I haven't been able to come, so it's great uh, finally to be able to come to one uh, and a genuine privilege to be asked to speak to you. Um, Gerald asked me to talk a bit about uh, where the NEJ is at and where I see it going in terms of being a freelance campaigning organisation and that is what I'll try and do. Um, I have to confess, I, I, I never really wanted to become president of the National Union of Journalists. Um, I've been a member of the National Executive for nearly 20 years, for most of which time I was happy to sort of try and be a uh, a critical friend to the to the union's leadership, um, and when friends and colleagues started badgering me and saying, well, "You know, I think you should you should have a go at being president," um, I, I, I resisted for quite some time. Partly because I was perfectly happy in the role that I had, and actually, when when I finally stood for election at our delegate meeting and was elected and came home and found myself thinking, "My goodness, you know." What is this organisation of which I've become the titular head? You know, what, 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 what does it all mean? And I went home and I kind of immersed myself in, well, I say immersed myself, I, I, I read the union's three histories. Uh, fortunately, there are only three, so I got through them reasonably quickly. Um, and, and I suppose what I found most striking was the, the extraordinary struggles back in 1906 when people started first establishing the union. The enormous, you know, extraordinary struggles that they went through to get the union going and to make sure that it spread from city to city and from country to country. Uh, clandestine meetings, meetings broken up by the bosses, you know, people associating secretly uh, as they tried to build their chapels, which went on for years and years and years. It took them 10 years to get their first national agreement uh, in London's Fleet Street. Um, and you know that the, 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 they had, you know, they went through the most extraordinary privations to build that. I mean, they, they in, in, in 1926, Clement Bundock, who went on to become General Secretary, came over to Ireland to uh, to try and bring together journalists and to organise them. And he caught the ferry back, intending to go back to London. But upon his arrival uh, at the ferry port, found the general strike 
uh, was just getting underway. And he caught a train that got him as far as Preston, at which time the railway workers said, I'm sorry, mates, general strike, we're all out, you, no, no further travel by train. Uh, and, you know, he obviously felt, well, I'm desperately needed back in London um, and, and started making frantic uh, inquiries about how he might get back there. And the general secretary said, no, we absolutely need you back there. So eventually he hired a car, which took him three days to drive back to London on very minimal petrol, um, you know, by which time actually the general strike was very nearly over. But it's kind of, it's kind of illustrative, I think, of the, of, of, of the, you know, sort of extraordinary lengths that people went to to build the union and the efforts they had to do to create an organisation that would support and defend journalists. I confess, when we, when we unpacked the union's headquarters, uh, which we did a couple of months ago to, um, you know, in preparation for its, its kind of massive renovation, I half found we might find the rental car that Clement Bundock had come down to London in, sort of sealed in aspic and awaiting return to some higher garage in, in Preston, but alas, we didn't. But I, I guess looking at those, you know, the kind of the extraordinary struggles that, that journalists went through all those years ago to build an organisation that would, that would defend and promote journalists and journalism, gives some sense but only some sense of how we've come through, you know, some very testing decades, you know, in the past 10, 20, 30 years, which have, you know, for, for, for unions on both sides of, of, of the Irish Sea, um, across the board, been, been really challenging times. Um, and for all, that, for all that we carry with us the spirit of those founders, I've also kind of found myself thinking, well, what, you know, what, what it is, is it in journalists that have kept us going, that have kept us a unionised profession when so many other areas of the workforce have, have lost that. And I've come to the conclusion that it's actually something in journalism itself that makes us natural trade unionists. Thinking about the way we do our work and comparing us, say, to doctors and accountants and lawyers, actually, in the practice of journalism, all that we really have is hard work and guile. Sure, you can train, sure you can learn alongside people, but we have no special privileges, we have no legal entitlements in the way that other professions do. All that we have, all that distinguishes us from people walking in the street is hard work and guile, which is a unique thing, I think, among an occupation that performs such an important role. Um, we also find ourselves having to work at times against the instructions of our employers we, to do to continue to work ethically and correctly and in, in, in the interests of journalism we have to defy our employers something which again no other professions have to do and I think it's those factors that make us, us, us naturally want to come together to try and, and, and defend uh, and, and, and promote the interests of the trade that we perform and actually I, I, I was at an event uh, that the International Federation of Journalists sort of three yearly gathering in France earlier in the year um, with journalists from something like 150 countries and you know s some of whom organize in in what we would consider very um, uh, very accommodating backdrops like the Scandinavian countries others live in exile face threat from from from, from uh, hostile governments uh, face uh, persecution from their employers of, of, of a physically violent variety, but seeing them, them interacting and working as an international union of journalists made me realise that those forces that I think keep 
the National Union of Journalists going in Britain and Ireland are the same thing that you can observe among journalists the world over. That feeling that we have, that we perform a vital function in society, that the work that we do is an essential lubricating force of democracy, and that to continue to make that happen, we need to bind together to consider and promote our interests. I promised Gerard that I'd talk a little bit about, about where, we, where, where we go in the future. I mean, we start, we start I think, in quite a, a fortuitous position in as much as our, our union has come through uh, the financial crash difficulties that start in 2007-2008. I mean, first point, we, we continue to exist, which I think many, many, many would have written us off given the, um, given the culling of journalistic uh, jobs that occurred at that time. Um, actually, we now have a growing membership. Um, that, among other things, means that we have a very stable financial backdrop. So I think we can, we can quite confidently say there will be a National Union of Journalists in the decades to come from the basis of where we're standing now. But it does beg the question, what should our priorities be? What should it be that we're working on to make sure that journalists um, are able to enjoy a, a reasonable standard of living from work that they're doing that I think is so important? And I think herein, actually, the example that Seamus was talking about earlier, the uh, victory uh, over the Irish Competition Authority, is a really important inspiration. I mean, I think Seamus outlined the details of it. It's possibly, you know, very familiar to all of you. But looking at, uh, at that campaign, which has gone on for over a decade and now seems on the cusp of success, I mean, I think we can be, can be really assured, reasonably assured that success will follow, um, and saying, well, what is it that's, that, 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 that's brought that victory? And it seems to me it's been a willingness to work across, you know, to build alliances with others who share our interests, others who have the same concerns as us, and to be, to be generous in our willingness to work, in, in some respects, outside our natural comfort area. Our, 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 our natural comfort area has always been in the industrial sphere, but this has involved us working with other unions, some of them some distance from our own uh, occupations and, 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 and building those alliances. And I think actually as a union what we need to start doing is looking to uh, that which we have in common with other freelance workers. Uh, in the UK, freelance workers now make up something like 15% of the workforce. I should have looked up the figure for the Republic of Ireland, but I'll wager that it's not very much different. So among, you know, added to those people who've been freelancers uh, as journalists have been since the sort of dawn of mass media, um, you know, there's the whole gig economy, the Deliveroo people and the Uber people. Uh, there are dozens of other <coughs> creative and media-related professions where more and more of the workforce are freelance. And these are not people building businesses. These are people essentially operating as workers, people who, who won't have a business to sell when they come to retire. They're people who go out to work but don't have the kind of protections that employees do. And it seems to me that what we need to do is reach out to those groups and say, you know what, we've been organising freelance workers for over a century. In fact, our first agreement with national newspapers included terms on freelance rates. So we've been here and we know a little bit about what we're doing. And what we now need to do is to turn our sights to things like minimum wage, in-work benefits, benefits more broadly and say how can those how can the terms of those be applied to freelance workers um, I mean the argument about the minimum wage for example it seems to me it ought to be possible to say if somebody is offering uh, 
uh, if somebody is seeking somebody to do a piece of work and it can reasonably shown that the length of time it will take to perform that means that the effective pay for it will be below the minimum wage, then that is against the law. Now, I would hope, as highly skilled workers, most of us are earning far more than the minimum wage. But the great advantage of bringing freelance work within, the, within its scope in, in, in the Republic of Ireland and in the UK would be that those people saying, I want you to do it for free, you can say, well, we'll apply the minimum wage, wage to it. Nobody can write a thousand-word article in less than, I don't know, I'm guessing about a day if it involves original research. That deserves, at the very least, whatever the minimum wage is. And I think, actually, there are other groups in society who will, who have, will have an interest in joining with us. If you, if you looked at the uh, strike among Deliveroo deliverers in London in the summer, part of their claim was about saying, actually, we are not businesses, you know, cycling around cities, delivering pizzas. We are people doing work for hire, and as a very minimum, we deserve the minimum wage. Now, it seems to me they might not be our natural allies. They may not be people we feel completely comfortable campaigning alongside, but actually, it's taking that campaign for freelance workers to a broader society and saying, if we really are something like 10 or 15% of the workforce, then as a society, taking proper care of those workers and making sure that they can live productive and and and, and you know they can they can lead lives that don't that don't involve poverty at any point during either their work or their post-work lives you know that's a responsible thing for a society to do but that's going to take quite a change of mindset on the part of policymakers and legislators and that's that's a campaign that I think we should be leading and that's where we should be directing our attention in the coming weeks and months Let me just end by saying, I'm not going to kind of bang on for hours, although I'm happy to take questions, needless to say, if any of you have them. Um, you know, there used, to be, there used to be a tradition with meetings that people would, would sing national anthems or salute national leaders at the end of them, um, which I don't really stand for. But actually, when we come together as a national union of journalists, it seems to me that we are affirming important things, and that actually simply the act of coming together uh, is about affirming some of those things which to me, you know, are very simple. They're about saying, we are here, that coming together here is about affirming that we believe in a free press and its importance to society and its importance in shining light on the way in which society runs for the benefit of everybody. And it's about us affirming that we stand for journalists and that we stand for the people who undertake that work and shine that light and make democracy work. And that we stand for the National Union of Journalists, which makes it possible for journalists to do that work and to shine light and to make our societies safer, better, more responsibly run places. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, an invitation there to answer questions, or at least to take questions, there is a difference. Um, are there any questions? Tim is going to be with us for the day, and so uh, on that basis, if there aren't any direct questions, you can meet people during the coffee break. Happy to do that. Okay, if, if there are. Um, okay, and introduce yourselves as well. Sorry, my name is Louise Coughlin, and I do a bit of freelance work for travel writing, and I did a bit of work, and um, I did it for free, basically. And I suggested, I asked, was he going to pay me? And he said, 
but I, bring, I wanted to bring on as part of the team and then eventually pay you. So how do I respond to that? I mean, he, I think he wants to give me the experience to start off with. I think he thought he was doing me a favor. Well, it's a very difficult position to be in and it's one that more and more people find themselves in, I, I, I realize. Um, I think there are lots of employers, people publishing things by whatever means, who some of whom say quite sincerely, I want to make you part of the team and to involve you and then hopefully this will be some work. Some of whom are utterly cynical about getting people to work for free because it makes organizations work for free. And some people will say, you know, how about doing a two month unpaid internship and that will you'll get your feet under the table, you'll learn so much. <coughs> Excuse me. And you know, two weeks becomes two months becomes two years. And that's that's the difficult thing. I well understand why people feel it's almost impossible to resist uh, giving work away at some point, particularly in the early years of trying to make a career working. All that I would say, and I, I, I'm not saying that people are morally wrong to do so, all that I would say is do it with your eyes open and don't do it for more than a couple of articles because if you do, actually you've moved into the realms of making organisations work without paying for them. And, and taking a stand is really, really difficult and I appreciate people will feel you know, that they've got their feet under the table and that things are starting to happen for them but the money hasn't yet been turned on. But you know, keeping a really clear eye, I mean, it's why as I say, I think actually making freelance work susceptible to the minimum wage would be a really, really beneficial thing to do because you'd be able to say, well, you know, nobody, I mean, you know, I'm sure some of us think, God, I, you know, I spent much too long on that piece or another, but you know, I think we, it would be perfectly straightforward to establish minimum times that it takes any piece to write. And actually the ability to say, well, you know, I am due the minimum wage, even if I think it's worth a lot more, would, be, would, would give people a little bit more of a lever in a relationship that's desperately unequal. And I guess, you know, part of the reason that we're in business as a union is because the relationship between all workers and employers is an unequal one, and between freelance workers, it's even more unequal because we're so isolated. I don't know, that, that perhaps sounds like I'm, I'm too nuanced to be helpful. It, I, I appreciate it's a really difficult situation. Yeah. Just the sooner you start asking for money, I think the sooner the, the way people respect you will increase. Okay. The other problem is that if you, ex, if you accept free, that free give away your work, that's what it's about. I mean, you don't, you'd never imagine saying, well, saying to an electrician, I won't pay you this time, if I need you again, I will. Uh, but if you do, that then becomes the base from which your work is judged. Uh, and it's very hard to break that habit. Uh, we operate in the real world, so you know, what I would say is, I think Tim is absolutely right. Uh, but one of the benefits of being a member of the union is that if someone turns around and says, uh, well, I want you to work for nothing. You say, well, actually, I'm a member of a union. Are you a member of the union? They probably are, in which case they shouldn't be asking you to work for nothing anyway. And it does, there is a tough call to be made. Sometimes if someone is demanding that you work for nothing, that's actually not work. So you have to decide it's not worth your time. And one of the problems, particularly with travel, is they almost sound like they're doing you a favor because they're giving you the trip and they're putting you on a mailing list or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, you're not going on the jolly, you are doing work. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Hi, um, I'm Andrea Mara, freelance features writer. Is there any kind of rule about whether you should be um, paid when you submit the work versus when it's published, or does that vary from publication to publication? 
the question, because some people at the back didn't hear it, is was the, is there a rule about when you should be paid? Should you be paid when the work is commissioned or when it's published? I'm not sure there's a rule. Um, I mean, it, 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 it would come down to contract law at some levels. The general practice is to pay on publication or to pay, you know, the, 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 the payment is, is timed from publications. But I say that having mostly worked for newspapers where the, the gap between submission and publication is only a matter of two or three days in most cases. Um, I'm not sure, I, I, I haven't come across publications that will pay earlier than that, although, I mean, I, I guess what we would say as a union is, if you have done work to the standard that was asked of you, mm -hmm. then they should pay you within the terms that you set. So, you, you know, you are selling a service, and, and to an extent it is for you to set your own terms of trade. Mm -hmm. So, in, in, I mean... Are you speaking from a, an ex a particular experience? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have uh, one situation where I was commissioned to write something for a magazine, and um, the, she hadn't published it yet. The editor and I had chased it and heard nothing back, and I had said, "Is there anything you want me to change?" And she wanted me to write something else quite urgently, and I said, "Oh, sorry, no, I can't." But how's it going with publishing? My first one that I sent you, and she said, "Oh, yeah, it's in the next issue." I was just keeping it on file, but it's great put it on in the next issue. So, um, like I was half thinking of just finding out the accounts department well, details and sending an invoice. Yeah, just anyway. send the bill. Yeah, it's I mean, my advice, well, two things. First of all, and there will be commissioning editors, I think, later, and there are always commissioned editors to perform. It's, it's about being very clear on the understanding when you are supplying copy. Uh, what I would do is I would send, it, I would send an invoice, mm -hmm. uh, and I would send it sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. uh, the other point I would make is just be very clear when you are doing the work, when, what the payment arrangement is, because more and more, and it, it's, there's one national paper in this town which is an offender in relation to this, and that is that they will take it, they'll say it's definitely a commission, and that's fine, make sure that it's a commission, that's not that. And yes, we are publishing, and you say, well, we pay on publication. And Tim is right, if that's going to be published within a reasonable period of time, that's fine. But I've come across this particular national newspaper where they say, well, yeah, we're still sitting on it. We're waiting until X, mm -hmm. and then that's overtaken. We're waiting until X. Well, that's fine. They can have that luxury, but you don't have that luxury because you you have bills to pay on an ongoing basis. So I think it is fair to say uh, that you should be paid within a reasonable period of time. And to me, you know, you should be talking about something like four weeks of mm -hmm. publication. But whatever the terms are, you set the terms. And remember that if they don't meet those terms, you are entitled then to add on an amount for that. However, I do realise that you don't want to fall out with people who are providing work, but this is not personal, this is just having, treating it as a business relationship. You provide the labour, they provide, they then provide you with the money. How they use it and what then is, is their call. Uh, and again, it's a bit like the habit. If they know that that's Seamus Dooley and he's to pay him and he's going to want to be paid, because if we don't, <laughs> accounts are going to get an email from him, you get paid. It's, a, it's about asserting your rights, and it is a right. You provide a professional service, you have a right to take pride in that, but pride alone is no good. It doesn't butter parsnips. Make sure they pay you the money. And it's just, just come in on that, Jim Offney Freelance. Um, I, I, I had a case where I interviewed the boss of one of the leading mobile providers in the country here for a, for a specialist magazine, and um, wrote the whole thing up, did the interview, wrote the whole thing up, and hit send, and immediately it came back. Oh, they don't want that interview published. The client or the 
boss of the, the CEO of the, of the mobile company, obviously, was, was in a takeover or something at the time and didn't want to interview her. And I was going, oh, shit, you know, there goes, you know, a, a nice check. And she said, we're going to pay you anyway. Uh, so, you know, people in business, uh, you know, and, and maybe I'm getting outside the newspapers here, but in the, in the general freelance okay. corporate world, people in business will often, if they've asked for the work, mm. whether they use it or not, they're going to pay for it because you have produced your thousand words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there is a point. If I'm a commissioning editor, I want someone to deal, to deal with their job professionally. I want them to carry out their journalism professionally. I want to know that I can trust them. How they conduct their own affairs is an insight as well. So it's a bit like a reporter in a newsroom. If you don't stand up to your news editor, how are you going to stand up to a difficult person that you're going out to interview on the doorstep? So actually, presenting a competent front saying, there's the quality product, that's the important bit, and there's the quality invoice. Uh, and any, any self-respecting business will say, she's your woman, it's good. We'll use her again. Not she's meek and mild and she's giving the work for nothing. It, it, it's worth, I mean, it's, it's worth putting your terms of trade on, on the invoice, and if you have a website or something like that, somewhere discreetly, just again saying, you know, I, I invoice on completion and expect payment within 28 days, even if, you know, you don't actually get it until 60 days. Yeah. Um, certainly if you ever had to pursue a debt in the small claims court, and again, you are clearly by that point in the point of maybe spoiling a relationship mm. that you might, you know, th there's a calculation to be made about spoiling relationships. But being able to say, I publish my terms of trade on my own website, they are there for anybody to see, is potentially helpful in persuading a court that you have a right on your side. Mm. 